Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by the lovely people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Now, in case you're unfamiliar with what Morbidly Beautiful is, well, it is a fantastic pop culture website with a very, very fine focus on horror and horror-related things. So if you're a fan of movies, movie reviews, top ten lists, recommendations, anything that has to do with pop culture, interviews, how could I forget interviews? Go check out morbidlybeautiful.com. They have all that and more. Very recently, they released a group mini-review on what you could call the latest horror movie to hit the big screen, and that would be Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I was a part of that little review, so go check it out to see my thoughts and the thoughts of some other very wise, smart, and talented people. Other than that, the only other piece of housekeeping I have for you today is the review contest. Now, last week I did get a new review. I read it out on the cast from Stephanie or Stefani, and it was fantastic. It was a five-star review, so thank you again for that. She is the first to be entered into the contest. So the contest is if you leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I'll read it out on the podcast, and it enters you into a draw to win some merch, be it a shirt or a print from one of my photography days or whatever. We have a couple of options. I'll let you choose. Just if you leave that review, make sure to send me an email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com so I can get your information. And then you can really win. I can send you something. If I can't get your email or if I can't get your address or your mailing address or something like that, it's going to be hard to get you something. But hopefully we get some more reviews in and I can start adding more people into the contest. Other than that, not a whole lot's going on over here. Still uploading to YouTube. So we still have Let's Plays going on through the channel there, as well as live streaming at twitch.tv slash horrorshotsplays. So join me on a live stream. The schedule's up on that website, so go check it out if you want to see me play some horror-related games. I've been playing a lot of Deceit lately, which is kind of like a survival horror arena game where it's a bunch of people have to survive the monster, and the monster is played by a person, and you don't know who that person is. So it's kind of like a whodunit as well. It's fun. It's interesting. But onto the cast itself today. I've been delaying it long enough. So here is the topic for today. You probably already got what it is all about from the subject title, but it is the Dyatlov Pass incident. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Dyatlov Pass is, it's referred to as one of the weirdest events in modern history. Now, it was back in 1959 where a bunch of Russian skiers and hikers got together and went on an expedition in the Ural Mountains, which is a part of Russia. Not very known. Russia's a huge place. This kind of put it on the map. The oddest thing about this whole scenario is that these were very experienced, very smart, very resourceful people who were on this expedition. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, horror struck. Now, it's named the Dyatlov Pass incident because of the leader, 
who is a 23-year-old Russian named Alexievich Dyatlov. He was the leader of this group that had the horrible, horrible things happen to them. So what exactly happened? Well, it was back in 1959, in the middle of winter, January, late January, early February, and these hikers went on sort of an expedition from the Euro Polytechnical Institute. And what happened was the stuff of nightmares. Now, some of this information will be taken from allthatsinteresting.com, such as this next aspect here. So from what was discovered from the cameras and diaries at the site of their deaths, investigators were able to piece together that on February 1st, the hiking team began to make their way through the then unnamed pass leading to Otterton. As they pushed through the hostile climate towards the base of the mountain, they were hit with snowstorms that ripped through the narrow pass. Decreasing visibility caused the team to lose their sense of direction, and instead of moving towards Oderton, they accidentally deviated west and found themselves on the slopes of a nearby mountain. The mountain is known as the Kolat Sayakal, meaning Dead Mountain, in the language of the indigenous Mansi people of the region. To avoid losing altitude, they had gained, or perhaps simply because the team wanted to practice camping on a mountain before their ascent to Oderton, Dyatlov called for a camp to be made there. It was on that solitary mountainside that all nine hikers would meet their fates. Before embarking on this journey, Dyatlov had told his sports club that he and his team would send them a telegram as soon as they returned from the hike. However, when February 20th rolled around, and there was still no communications from the ski hikers, a search party was mounted. The volunteer rescue force that trekked through the Dyatlov Pass found the campsite, but no hikers. So the army and police investigators were sent in to determine what had happened to the missing students. When they arrived on the mountain, the investigators were hopeful. Though the students were experienced hikers, the route they had chosen was remarkably difficult, and accidents on tricky mountain trails are not unheard of. With so many days gone, they expected to find bodies and sad but uncomplicated answers. They were only partly correct. Bodies they found, yes but the state in which they were found raised only more questions. Their discovery would open a mystery that continues to this very day, which is very true as Russia apparently reopened the investigation into this as early as February of 2019. Back in February of 1959, when the investigators first arrived on the scene, the first thing that they had noticed was that the tents had been cut open from the inside out, and most of the team's belongings, including several pairs of shoes, had been left inside. Which, if you know anything about Russia in January, that is probably not the smartest thing to do. Very cold, very snowy, very dangerous. They then discovered eight or nine sets of footprints from the team, many of them clearly made by people with either nothing, socks, or a single shoe on their feet. These tracks led to the edge of the woods, almost a mile away from the camp. At the forest's edge, under a large cedar, the investigators found the remains of a small fire and the first two bodies. Yuri Krivoshenko, at 23 years old, and Yuri Doroshenko, at 21. Despite temperatures of minus 13 to minus 22 Fahrenheit on the night of their deaths, both men were found shoeless, wearing only their underwear. The next three bodies they found were those of Dyatlov himself, Sinadea, Kolmogovra, at 24 years old, and Rustam Slobodin, at 23. They all died on their way back 
to the camp from the cedar tree where the first two bodies were found, supposedly, from that tree line anyway. While the circumstances were odd, the causes of death were pretty clear. All the students had perished from hypothermia. Their bodies showed no indication of severe external damage beyond what had been inflicted by the cold. It wasn't until the four other bodies were found two months later that the mystery deepened. They were discovered buried under the snow in a ravine 75 meters deep into the woods, then the cedar, so where the original bodies were found, and their bodies told dramatically different stories than those of the other group members. Three of the six hikers had fatal injuries, including Nikolai Thibault Brigionel at 23, who had suffered significant skull damage in the moments before his death. Ludmila Dubanina, at 20 years old, and Simeon Zolotarov, at 38, had major chest fractures that could only have been caused by an immense force comparable to that of a car crash. In the most gruesome part of the pass incident, Dubanina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, as well as facial tissue and fragments of her skull. They also found the body of Alexander Kolvatov at 24 years old in the same location but without the severe wounds. The second group of bodies suggested that the hikers had died at a drastically different time than the originals. They appeared to have been making use of the clothes of the people who died before them. Dubinina's foot was wrapped in a piece of Kiravashenko's wool, pants, and Zolotarov's was found in Dubinina's faux fur coat and hat, suggesting he had taken them from her after she had died. And same goes for the other pair. Nobody could really make sense of what happened, and the mystery of the circumstances of the past incident begged for an explanation, and many, to be fair, have been put forward. Early on, many Soviets suspected that the students' deaths were the result of an ambush by the local Mensi tribesmen. A sudden attack would account for the way the hikers fled their tents, their disarray, and the damage done to the second group of bodies. But that explanation fizzled out fairly quickly. The Mensi people were largely peaceful, and the evidence in the Dyatlov Pass didn't support violent human conflict. For one, the damage done to the students' bodies exceeded the blunt force trauma one human could inflict on another. There was also no evidence of any footprints on the mountains beyond those made by the hikers themselves. Investigators then conceived of a swift, violent avalanche. The sound of the snow clashing and early warning sign of the deluge to come would have frightened the hikers out of their tents in a state of undress and sent them sprinting for the tree line. An avalanche would also be powerful enough to inflict the injuries that killed the second group of students. But controversy raged. Would the experienced hikers have made camp in a spot that was vulnerable to an avalanche? Probably not. And what of the girl and her missing eyes and part of her lip and her tongue? Uh, there was also the fact that when the investigators found the bodies, they noted no evidence that an avalanche had occurred at any recent time in the region. There was also no damage done to the tree line, and searchers observed no debris. No avalanches had been recorded at that site before, and nor have there been any since. The avalanche hypothesis was characteristic of most of the theories put forward in the early days of the mystery. It offered an incisive solution to some aspects of the puzzle, but utterly failed to account for the others. Some tried to explain the hiker's strange behavior and lack of clothing with an in-depth look at the effects of hypothermia. Irrationality is a common early sign of hypothermia, and as a victim approaches death, they may paradoxically perceive themselves to be overheating, resulting in removed clothing. The trauma to the second group of bodies in this version of events is caused by a stumbling plunge over the edge of a ravine. 
Yet, hypothermia doesn't explain why the hikers left their warm tents in a panic for the frigid forest world outside in the first place. Other investigators began to test theories that the deaths were the result of some argument among the group that got out of hand, possibly related to a romantic encounter that could explain some of the lack of clothing. But people who knew the ski group said they were largely harmonious. More compelling is the point that the Dyatlov skiers would have been no more able to inflict the damage on their fellow hikers than the Mensi. The force involved in the death rendered them extremely unlikely to have been brought about by humans. So with humans effectively ruled out as the culprits, some began to posit non-human assailants. People began to whisper that the hikers were killed by a menk, a kind of Russian yeti, to account for the immense force and power necessary to cause the injuries to the three students. This theory is popular among those who focus on the damage to Dubinina's face, while most explain her missing tissue by positing a visit from small scavengers or perhaps decay resulting from her partial submersion in a watery, under-snow stream. Menk proponents see a more sinister predator at work. Other sleuths point to the reports that small amounts of radiation were detected on the bodies, leading to wild theories that the students have been killed by some sort of secretive radioactive weapon. Those who favor this idea stress the strange appearance of the bodies at their funerals. The corpses had a slightly orange, withered cast. But had radiation been the cause of death, more than modest levels would have been registered when the bodies were examined. The corpse's orange hue isn't surprising given the frigid conditions in which they lay. They were primarily mummified in the cold. But for many, the possibility of a mysterious military weapon is too intriguing to resist. Some say the ski team was unfortunate enough to stumble upon the USSR testing a concussive weapon or perhaps a parachute mine exercise. This explanation is popular because it is partially supported by the testimony of another hiking group, one camping 50 kilometers from the Dyatlov Pass team on the same night. This other group spoke of strange orange orbs floating in the sky around Kolat Cycle, a site proponents of this theory interpret as distant explosions. The hypothesis goes that the sound of the concussions drove the hikers from their tents in a panic, half-clothed, the first group died of hypothermia while attempting to take shelter from the blasts by waiting by the nearby tree line. The second group, having seen the first group freeze, determined to go back for their belongings but fell victim to hypothermia too, while the third group got caught in a fresh blast further into the forest and died from their injuries. Lev Ivanov, the chief investigator of the Dyatlov Pass incident, said, quote, I suspect at the time, and am almost sure now, that these bright flying spheres had a direct connection to the group's deaths, unquote, when he was interviewed by a small Kazakh newspaper in 1990. Censorship and secrecy in the USSR forced him to abandon this line of inquiry. In the end, the hikers' deaths were officially attributed to a compelling natural force, and the case was closed. The pass in which the hikers lost their lives was named after the leader of the group, Alexievich Dyatlov. Now, as I mentioned, this case has been reopened since 1959 when everything was sort of inconclusive. Now, they're saying that they want to use modern technology that wasn't available at the time, as well as friends and family of any of the members of that hiking party. One friend of Dyatlov, called Peter Bartolome, said, A year prior to the incident, we went to the subpolar Uralis in an expedition where the conditions were much more difficult than the, his last venture. 
I've always characterized him as a wonderfully knowledgeable person, an athlete, always well prepared. One could always rely on him. The investigators were set to fly out at the end of March, I believe it was, and there hasn't really been much update since, so perhaps they're still out there. It's hard to say for certain what the results of that would be. Maybe when they get released, I'll do a follow-up podcast on that. All in all, it is one of the strangest semi-supernatural case ever. It's up there with UFOs and Bigfoot. It's up there with haunted houses and possessions. All sorts of crazy theories go on. And although it's not super supernatural as of right now, there are those theories about the Russian Yeti. Or some have even speculated that it was a haunting and that spirits drove them mad or even witchcraft I've seen thrown around in the past as well. Nobody really knows for sure and maybe we never will. It's hard to say after more than 50 years on that mountaintop if those prosecutors or investigators will find anything at the site. It's unlikely, but we can always hope and we can always kind of watch out for the crazy and supernatural aspects of this case to come to life. You never know. Maybe they will find the mank out there and that the Yeti will be proven to exist. Or maybe they'll just find that it was simple hypothermia and they just kind of went mad from the condition. But that does bring us to the end of the cast for this week. I really hope you enjoyed it. It wasn't quite the usual, I know, but it was very interesting nonetheless. I've always wanted to do a podcast on it, and there we go. I've joined the ranks of countless others who've done the same thing, either blogs, podcasts, or vlogs. But now I throw my hat into the ring, so hopefully you enjoyed what you heard. Like I said, don't forget to review the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whichever you prefer. And don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel and follow me on Twitch. If you do like what you hear, this is the best case scenario for you. You can watch me play video games and be dumb. And you can, you know, potentially win something if you review. Or you can watch me live and chat with me during the Twitch streams. So, until next week.